Uh, hi everybody, I'm Saul Cross and you're listening to the Scene World Podcast. It's the Scene World Podcast. My name is AJ, your name is your... Hi! So, today, in a minute, we are talking... Who are we talking to? We are talking to Chris Bateman. Chris Bateman. And- yes, and he is known to have worked on... Discworld games. Hmm. Exactly 20 years ago. Oh, okay. Cool. I missed this podcast. I was out on special assignment, but I'm here for the intro. Nice. Yeah. So before we do that, that's coming up in a minute. There's a Kickstarter. There's stuff. There's cool. It's awesome. Before we do that, we got some, some I guess we got some news and, and, and information. For example, we have, um, we have a press announcement from Corion. And they are actually working on a game that is called Alien Escape. And you have to think in 360 degrees that they write, because Hmm. you have to turn it to actually surpass the level. Turn what? Well, the whole environment. Oh, okay. So he is running and you are turning the environment meanwhile. Interesting. That's different. Yeah. And they write that Kim Seidner is the main developer of Nofil, and he's not only a programming enthusiast, he is also an incredible pixel artist, and um, he is doing the awesome animations with a lot of details for the game. Hmm. And the game is getting to be released for... Um, spring summer 2019 for PC and consoles, which means Nintendo Switch. Um, more information about the development will come in the near future via Twitter and website. Okay. Yep. So there is more information about that on Korean.de. Hmm. Cool. Um, I got I got some here. Project Sid Effects. We've talked about the Sid Effects before in the past. Yeah. Um, there is a new batch available. It was just announced a couple of days ago, uh, early March. Um, so that's the good news. The bad news is that this might be the last batch of Sid Effects is made. So why? It, it says that the uh, a key component used is no longer manufactured, and it's getting increasingly difficult to locate any on the market. Ooh. Last December, they were able to find a small number of the components and build the new batches. So, if you want to get a SIDFX, get it now, because this might be the last time you can. Huh. And I will heartily recommend the SIDFX is awesome. I, I've, I, I don't think that I could actually... I, I don't know, I don't, I don't think I could go back to not having one. Just because the, 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 the pseudo-stereo just sounds so bitchin'. Wow. Well, I still, I still get to go the fix, so I should do that soon, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So that's that. Now, what were you telling me about? You, you, you messaged me about individual computers. Yes, um, they, they, they actually wrote on Amiga News um, that if this thing between Cloento and obviously Hyperion. Cannot be resolved, then Jens Schoenfeld will be out of the Amiga business in 2020. Hmm. Now, this is 
So I guess Cloanto recently just purchased more of the Amiga holdings. I guess they bought Amiga Inc. or something, and so now they're 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 fighting Hyperion. Uh, the Amiga IP is a cluster of non of just competing people that are just sitting on copyrights and trying to stop other people from doing things, and it's annoying. And I can see how it would have an impact on Yen's because I mean the stuff he's putting out, like the ACA five hundred has, it has licensed Kickstart, you know one point three and three one is included with it as well as a full install of three one, you know. Well, so, he's he's making a living on the Amiga and Commodore sixty four right. stuff. Without the Amiga, how he can keep running the R hardware business? Well, I mean, ultimately, he could pull, he could do sort of like what the Ultimate 64 did, where you just remove the ROMs. So it would be the, the ACA 500 plus, but without the kickstarts built in and without the, uh, the OS kick built in. So you'd still have to get them from someplace else. But, but again, I think that he has licensing agreements with Hyperion. So, so theoretically, if Hyperion loses the lawsuit, then Cloanto could go after individual unless he, he turns around and signs some kind of, you know, unless he agrees to their terms, which their terms might be ridiculous. So it's 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 not looking very bright for the Amiga. Well, you mentioned the Ultimate see. 64 and that's a C64 replacement. Right, right. Right. Which which, again, because of Cloanto, had to remove the ROMs. Because they currently hmm. own the copyright for the ROMs, so now it's it's just it's a dead board that you have to put your own ROMs on. But yeah, Cloanto is you know you know there's lots of competing back and forth on who's in the wrong and everything, but but I see Cloanto doing a lot less with the IP than I see everyone else doing. Like Hyperion just released three one four, and I actually have it. I put it on. I, I my my A five hundred has three one four in it. Well, yeah, they are known awesome. for these for the Amiga forever and C sixty four forever. Right, but all that is is an emulation package. It's a CD full or a DVD full of software, and you just run it, and and that's it. They're not actually making new stuff. They're not pushing the platform forward. They're just sort of cashing in on what already exists, if that makes any sense. And and, and trying to stop other people from doing from doing other things, like like Hyperion put out three one four. And Cloanto immediately tried to stop him, which just seems uh, unnecessarily litigatious. Litigatious? Is that a word? Litigatious? Litigious. If you don't know it. Litigious. Litigious. Litigious is the word. God, I'm terrible. Um, yeah, it just seems unnecessarily litigious. And I don't know. It just the the future of Amiga doesn't look bright outside of like the the indie scene, like the the independent developers that are doing stuff. As far as hardware goes and software for like the OS and everything, it's just it feels like it's just hit an end, hit a dead end with these companies that are just fighting each other for control of but, the IPs. But Darren Mayburn made a deal with Cloento back then. He he used it for the C sixty four Mini. Right. I mean, Cloento is mentioned on the box, so. Mm -hmm. Looks right. like there is a way to not have particular agreement. Yeah. Well, but again, you know, I, you don't know what that deal is with Cloanto. You know, Cloanto could be getting a cut of every freaking version of the of every sale of the sixty four mini. 
you know, 20% could be going to Cloanto. Which, which maybe for something like that is all right, but for a smaller operator like individual, that's going to be a huge chunk of your profits. Well, Darren Mailburn, is he small? Is Vetro Games small? I don't know. I, I don't think it's pretty small. I don't think it's small. I mean, they're in stores. You know, they're they're in they're here. I've seen I've seen them in stores. That's a that's a significant. That's that's okay. a a decently sized operation, I would imagine, because you're not going to have distribution like that. Um, you know, from, from a small, small company. Um, so, you know, whereas I don't know what the size of the team at individual computers is. I feel like it's probably just Jens and like no, two other people. No, no, He has more, more people working for Yeah, him. I know he's got more people, but it's not like, it's not like a hundred employee company here. You know, it's, it's a, exactly. it's a small, it's a small company. So they probably can't afford to cut you know, 20% of their profits to give to Cloanto. But we'll see. We'll see how that works. Hopefully, hopefully this whole thing gets resolved and not in a stupid way. Last bit of news I have. Yes, yes. So, Walter Day announced there will be a birthday party for 17th birthday in the Museum of Pinball of John's Week's Le Legendary in Banning, California, on Saturday, May 18th. Ooh, are we invited? It's a free party. Everyone is invited oh, okay. for free ice cream, cake, and so on. Okay. Old Schooler Game Magazine and the soon-to-be-announced sponsor will be joining me in conducting a major trading card ceremony. That will see nearly 100 new trading cards unveiled. Hmm. With the trading card award presented in golden frames. Do I get my card yet? Well, ask him. <laughs> yeah. Pretty sure he has no idea who I am. That's okay. Well, no. He saw the um, poor Muslim only interview. Hmm. Yeah. So... So if you happen to be in Banning, California, at, and, and happen to be walking by the John Weeks Legendary Museum of Pinball on May 18th, then, hey, swing by, hang out in uh, for Walter Day's 70th birthday. I just sent you the link to the I, announcement I'm via WhatsApp. I'm reading it right now. <laughs> Great. Parties from 4 p.m. till closing. So, so if you're there, yep. go play some pinball. Hang out with Walter Day, I guess. Yeah, important is training card ceremonies will be at 6 p.m. Yeah. Following by a group photo. Of all the people who have ever appeared on a trading card. So it's, it's a group photo of, of people on trading cards. Yep. That are, that are there. Yep. So awesome. So check that out if you're there. Yep. That would be all the news I'm having. That's about all I got. So Wonderful. So Chris Bateman is hanging out, waiting for us to get to him. So let's go and talk to him and find out about Silk. Welcome to the podcast. Um, Hello. Today we are talking to Chris Bateman, and you are mainly known for having worked on the Discworld games, at least two of them, from what I saw. 
Yes. Uh, right at the beginning of my career, I uh, was at Perfect Entertainment, who made the Discworld games. Uh, I joined a little um, after the first game, but uh, Discworld 2 was uh, pretty much the first uh, video game that I worked on professionally. And then Discworld Noir, which was the third of them, I, it was my first game as a lead designer and as a lead writer, which uh, was really being thrown in at the deep end. And that was exactly 20 years ago, if Moby Games is right. Uh, it came out in 1999, so that is 20 years ago since release, yes. I mean, we started work on that several years before that. I, I had a lot of time, uh, I had almost a year there where I did almost nothing but read uh, Discworld novels and watch film noir movies uh, it, and read, uh, read uh, hardball detective uh, stories like Raymond Chandler and so forth. So there was a good year there where my job was basically to, uh, to do research, which is uh, not that taxing actually compared to other jobs I've done since. Okay, so let me ask you, how did you actually start into, uh, I would say, game designing? Yes. And, um, how did that happen? Uh, well, the brutal truth is uh, what I really wanted to do was make tabletop role-playing games. Uh, but then along came Magic the Gathering, and uh, that sort of knocked the bottom out of the market for tabletop role-playing games, and it became apparent I wasn't going to be able to do that anymore. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I ended up working in, in video games instead. I've, I've always liked games, uh, tabletop games and video games, and uh, quite happy to work on, on uh, either set of projects. But it was video games that... that uh, that was there when I needed them to work on. So that, that's how I ended up going down that path. Okay. Um, so how did you get in touch with role-playing games in general and adventure games? Because that is what we, are, what, what we will talk about now with your latest game. So how did that happen? How did I get into role-playing games? Yes. Well, um, I well, I don't know if my sister will appreciate me telling this story, but I, I, she had an admirer at school who was a Dungeons and Dragons player, and he bizarrely gave her a copy of the 1981 uh, basic D&D set, which she had no use for whatsoever, and so gave it straight to me. And um, I started playing that with my friends, and very quickly started playing all sorts of uh, of classic. Uh, games, things like uh, Car Wars, which is a tabletop battle uh, system by Steve Jackson, and oh, just about every tabletop role-playing game there was, and um, the uh, computer video game versions as well. I mean, spent a lot of time mapping Bard's Tale back in the day. Uh, all my friends came around to play Bard's Tale on my Atari ST because I'd already mapped the the whole thing, and they used my maps to complete it. So I've been playing role-playing games pretty much uh, since, whew, but when, when did that mean? Since 1981, since I was nine, I think. Yeah, um, I guess I guess Bart's Tale was 85. Yeah, that's right. Mistaken. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I had played computer role-playing games before Bart's Tale, but that's the one that really uh, stuck in my head from there. That, that, was, uh, that was a really memorable moment uh, in the role-playing game's life. And um, yeah, I, I've ended up working on quite a few uh, role-playing games since because I worked with um, some Slovakian um, clients of ours to uh, make the Heretic Kingdoms uh, role-playing games. The latest one of those, Shadows Awakenings, out at the moment for, uh, for most platforms. Hmm, interesting. So for your latest game, you decided to go for Kickstarter, and that is actually called Silk. Yes. 
So uh, I was very uh, divided on this question about whether to go uh, for a Kickstarter on this. But I, I partly I we're, we're in the process of setting up um, a, a game developer. My company, International Hobo, is, is a, a services company. We, we provide game design and narrative design services to other companies. And I've been doing that since I left Perfect Entertainment, since I worked on the Discworld games, more or less. Um, but we mostly don't make our own games. We mostly help other people make their games. And this uh, last year, we just started putting two teams together to make games. And the, the first of those that will be finished is Silk. The thing is, uh, I looked at Silk and thought, this is a this is a pretty um, esoteric project. This is a project that's gonna we're gonna need some help finding the players who, who want to play this style of game. And largely, my thinking about the Kickstarter was running the Kickstarter will help us find the players who want to play this kind of game. So um, it, whatever happens with the Kickstarter, it's as much about us finding an audience who's interested in a retro explorer game. Um, as anything else. It, it takes a certain kind of person to want to play this kind of game, and I hope they're out there. <laughs> so far, so good with the Kickstarter. Well, I'm, um, we spoke to a lot of um, designers who kickstarted their games, and um, what, from what I gathered is, since David Crane failed with his year, years ago, um, game companies and designers were a bit hesitating in going at Kickstarters um, as well. So, yeah. um, I think the thing is, the golden age of Kickstarter is already behind us, right? So a few years back, everything was, was, was going down the Kickstarter route. But now it's actually quite difficult to succeed in a Kickstarter. Most magazines, most websites aren't interested in covering games that are funding themselves via Kickstarter. So it's very difficult to get noticed coming down that line. And I think a lot of uh, people who were backers before have been burnt by it and so are a little bit nervous about um, backing projects now. Uh, for us, the, the thing is, we have to go and get publishing partners because we, we're sticking Silk on Switch, PS4 uh, and Xbox One. Um, to do that, we will need a, a publishing partner. Um, but getting the money from the Kickstarter gets us over the hump with things we need, like the portraits for the characters in the game, which are a, a real stumbling block because I can't, my core team can't deliver them. We have to uh, go to Becky, who is our, our portrait artist, and we <laughs> we needed some uh, help to do that, uh, and th that's why we went to the Kickstarter. But ultimately, we still have to go to um, a publisher if we're going to uh, ship the game. We, the, the money we're raising at Kickstarter isn't enough to get it onto all of the platforms, if you see what I mean. That is what, what everybody does. Yeah. Basically. Um, I, I played the demo a bit, and I found the graphic style of the game is pretty unique. Yes. It's more like a cartoonic thing. And um, as you mentioned the Switch, I even wonder if that will look so great on the Switch in a way, because um, when I was talking to game designers, um, most of them were, uh, were telling me the problem is um, to shrink down the game size and the um, graphic quality to make games run fluid or being small enough for a game card. Yes. Well, um, we actually, Switch is the one platform we have a lead on because we already actually have the demo running on uh, Switch at the moment. Um, it, and it, it runs pretty well, actually. It's it's quite well suited to it. The, the engine is very lightweight. I mean, the, the engine is 
modelled on Mike Singleton's original um, landscaping engine for the 1984 Lords of Midnight, which which was the the game that sort of inspired me to to pursue this project. I really wanted to do a tribute game to Lords of Midnight, and I felt like if I didn't do it now, I'd never do it. So um, yeah, do it now while people who remember Lords of Midnight are still alive. That that's the the uh, the, the plan there, really. Um, so yeah, it seems to run on Switch uh, fine. I, I haven't had a chance to play it myself, but uh, I will do on Tuesday this week, and we hope to be taking some video footage of the game running on Switch, which is which is very exciting. I, I'm really looking forward to seeing the game uh, on the Switch because it was the platform we really wanted to get it, it on in the first place. Um, so let's let's talk a bit about what has Silk to offer. We 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 uh, mentioned now the special graphic style, mm. and what what else is there gameplay wise? What can people expect? Um, I have to give you a little a bit of background. The last role playing game I played was No Name in two thousand one for the Commodore <laughs> right. sixty sixty four, and, and then I basically. Um, didn't touch the role-playing genre so much ever since. Right. Okay. So you you're still uh, enjoying the classics, George. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's right. So uh, Silk sets you in uh, 200 AD um, in the lands between the Roman Empire and Three Kingdoms China, and you uh, you choose one of four heroic destinies, either to travel the Silk Road or to build a trading empire or to overthrow the Parthian Empire, who are bitter rivals of the Romans, or to uh, come in as the warlord and, and to uh, take over the imperial mints. Um, and basically, you either um, either pl uh, play towards a military endgame or you play towards uh, some kind of uh, commercial or travel endgame. So you recruit a party of advisors There are uh, advisors generated for all the different cultures on the Silk Road and they have different skills. You add them to your party uh, and then you take that uh, party across uh, the Silk Road trying to uh, survive bandit attacks and um, keep your camels and horses going between uh, settlements, basically. So it's part wilderness survivor, part exploration, part battle game, part trading game. It's a bit like Elite, uh, but in 280. Actually, I actually saw the promo video, and you mentioned especially Elite. Yeah. Yeah. No. See, I didn't set off to uh, to do, uh, to make Elite. We we set off trying to look at what we could do with the Lords of Midnight concept. But once we decided to try and uh, set it in 200 AD, it it became uh, inevitable that the game would be partly about running trading caravans and that makes it uh, feel a little bit like elite with camels right so uh in elite you would buy different uh, things to uh, allow you to do this you buy mining lasers and fuel scoops and be an asteroid miner or you would buy better weapons and go out and collect bounties or, or go pirate and and, and attack um, uh, other starships and steal their, their cargo. Uh, and we have kind of the same thing going on here. You can use the resources you've got to uh, get guards and horses and use those to uh, take over settlements and get tribute from those settlements or attack Uh, caravans, if you like, you can uh, turn uh, pirate by land, uh, turn brigand and uh, go and attack other caravans. Or you can be more honest about it. You can build a large caravan of uh, camels and uh, run trade 
uh, east or west. And there are different goods that uh, sell better moving east or west. So silk, for instance, which starts in uh, in China, uh, gets more valuable the more uh, westward that you carry it. Trouble is, the closer you get to the Roman territory, the more of a war zone it is that you're trying to cross because the Parthians and the Romans have been at war for decades at this point, And it's just a, a absolute uh, disaster area uh, over in Mesopotamia, uh, to, uh, as it was in 200 AD. So it is now pretty much uh, that, uh, that whole area, Iraq and Iran, pretty much been at war for two, two millennia now. Uh, but we'll take you right back to the beginning of that conflict with this bitter rivalry between the Roman Empire and the Parthians. Interestingly, a few years back, media wrote that um, games that need a lot of involvement in stories like role-playing games or real-time strategy games are a dying genre, like Command and Conquer, which mm. which has hours of gameplay and so on. And now there seems to be a bit of a re um, of a revival, and those kinds of games appear to come back so i guess when you said now is the right time to make a game like silk that is probably coined on the retro and um well the revival of old genres yeah no so i think the thing is Uh, every now and then, the, uh, it looks like some particular part of the games industry is taking over from everything else. I mean, in the 90s, it was point-and-click adventures. It wasn't a coincidence that I was working on point-and-click adventures in the 90s. They were huge then, right? LucasArts made point-and-click adventures look like the future of video games. But then, well, along... AdventureSoft in UK. Yeah. yeah and, well, Times the Sorcerer and all that stuff. Yeah. Yes, not uh, Magnetic Scrolls as well. My boss, Angela Sutherland, uh, worked for uh, um, for Firebird, uh, BT's company, and so we had a hand in, in the Magnetic Scrolls uh, adventure games. So there was this point where those adventure games, and particularly the point-and-click adventures in the 90s, were, were the sort of the top of the market. But then along comes doom and and quake and all of a sudden everything's moving in a completely different direction overnight not to mention um super mario 64 um which sets off all, all of the uh, the platform games so it comes in swings and roundabouts right the, the video games uh, industry is always focusing on one kind of thing or another and at the top end at the moment we've got a lot of focus on um, well, still open world games still doing well in various different forms, but also, of course, battle royale games at the top end of the market. But elsewhere, we're seeing lots of styles of games that have not been made for a while coming back. I mean, look at The Escapists. The Escapists is basically an incredibly late sequel to uh, School Days and Back to School on the ZX Spectrum. Um, the, there's this real sense of uh, classic forms coming back. And we mentioned Elite. Obviously, we've got Elite Dangerous now, which is uh, uh, had a fairly large gap between uh, that and the, uh, the previous Elite sequel, uh, to say the least. I think that there is now more of an appetite for uh, looking at things uh, that we had in the past and, and finding new ways to, uh, to make them work today. And I thought it'd be really nice to see if I can make one of those exploration adventures Uh, work for a contemporary audience. And that, that's what I, I'm experimenting with in Silk. You mentioned uh, Switch being the primary platform, and that's pretty interesting because each year I'm having a booth with my team at, at Gamescom in the veteran area, and we also make interviews in the business area. 
And when I was talking to game developers and publishers two years ago at Gamescom, people were like, ah, Switch, we will see what other people are doing. (laughs) Uh, The the hardware is not strong enough. And and then last year, Bethesda came up and a panic button made a version of Doom, which seemed to be impossible. And and then um, a year later, they, they make Wolfenstein 2, which was also um, <laughs> meant to be impossible, and and suddenly suddenly all game publishers and developers are jumping on a Switch platform and say, okay, we will do a Switch platform release and it will be good. So I wonder um, what changed there, or what was the reason you decided that Switch is one of your platforms that that you will support. Okay, so uh, th- there's two things here. One is why the, the Switch was so successful at taking off. And I think it's the fact that, yes, it's a home console. And, and yes, as a home console, it's not as powerful as the uh, PlayStation 4 or the Xbox One. But you would also pick it up, carry it, play it wherever you like. And that is a huge uh, thing that you just don't do with other home consoles. And uh, if there's one thing we've learned over the last two years, it's that gamers are more than willing to put up with a little drop in the graphics uh, quality or the, uh, the performance if it means they can play it anywhere. Uh, and that's the appeal of the Switch. And I, I really felt in the in the early days of, of working on, on Silk, because we, we did look about whether or not to do it for mobiles, because uh, that was also a, a, a route that we could have done. But the more we looked at it, we thought, do you know what? Switch would just be a really great platform to have this in. I mean, don't get me wrong. It'll run on all the platforms. And obviously, you've seen the PC demo, I'm thinking. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, it'll run on all platforms and it runs perfectly fine on the PC. But there's something about this kind of exploration adventure that I think would work really nicely as a uh, as a portable uh, game, as a, as a game that you could uh, take around with you and just dip into when you fancied a bit of uh, of exploring the uh, the vast uh, landscape between Rome and China. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so. What's your approach? What are the other team members? Um, do you have anything special coming up, um, like a special kind of music, something, doing something in the game that wasn't done before, something groundbreaking? Something groundbreaking. Hmm. Well, I, 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 for me, the most groundbreaking aspect of this project is that it's uh, uh, taking an engine designed from 1984 and presenting it with contemporary tech. And I think that is not the way any sane person makes a video game. But uh, it, it's what I wanted to do. I wanted to come in with that landscape engine that had been used in Lords of Midnight. And uh, I wanted to see what we could do with it as a contemporary game. And so groundbreaking, no, uh, but um, different, yes, right? uh, It's not like I'm I'm doing something that hasn't been done before because it was done in 1984. But uh, nobody's seen a game put together quite uh, like this. And it's... It's got a lot of those qualities that make the exploring games of the 80s appealing, but it's also got a little bit more legs because it's a little bit more uh, contemporary. So, for instance, the advisors uh, have quite a lot of dialogue that would just not have fitted into a Spectrum or a Commodore 64. There wasn't enough memory. Uh, But the advisors have lots of different things to say to advise you while you're uh, traveling around. And there's quite a lot of uh, charm to uh, some of the things that they uh, say in response to the stuff that's going around. I, I think it's a really interesting uh, piece, and uh, I'm um, I've been really enjoying uh, working on it, uh, and I, I'm really 
would rather just be working on it rather than having to go around promote it, to be quite honest, which I think is something that many game developers feel. Uh, so I want, to, <laughs> I want to be working on the project rather than having to tell people about it. But uh, if we don't tell people about it, no one's going to find it. I mean, look at people like Ron Gilbert. Yeah. He has, he has done more interviews for, uh, for, for his latest adventure game, Thimbleweed Park, than he ever did before. So... Um, well, I guess that's just part of the the progress. And um, why I'm asking if there's something new compared to back then is I remember when I was talking to Ron Gilbert, he said we made the same um, pixel graphics, but we added pixel shader technology that oh. wouldn't be possible before. So uh, you mentioned that it's basically more text and more conversation. Yeah, uh, certainly compared to games from 1984, because... You know, you only had 64K or whatever to, to work with, so it, it was very difficult to, uh, to have a great deal uh, of text at the time. Um, but we've, got, uh, we've got actually a, a, a scripting engine which is very similar to King of Dragon Pass uh, from 1999. Uh, that, that team, of course, have their own uh, uh, game out. They've got uh, Six Ages kicking around at the moment. But I really liked their scripting engine. I really liked the way that they had the clan ring provide advice to the player about what to do in King of Dragon Pass. And I, I looked at that system really closely and thought, do you know what? That system is good enough that it doesn't have to just give you advice. We could make a whole role-playing game around this system of, of having dialogue triggered according to the circumstances the player faces. So a large part of the play of Silk is listening to your advisors suggest ways to react to the current situation and making the best choice you, you can from the situation. And depending on your advisors, um, you might have a lot of good choices or you might have no good choices in a situation. It's a matter of how you built your party and what kind of situations you then end up encountering. And uh, even though I wrote all of the dialogue myself, I'm still finding stuff come out of the, uh, the advisors from time to time, which gives me a chuckle because I'm not expecting them to... Uh, to say various things that just uh, come out at random, it rather tickles me. So there is some kind of art, um, artificial intelligence engine in it. If you say they say things, you wouldn't expect either. It's well, I have a background in AI, but uh, don't be fooled by artificial intelligence. Computers are actually pretty stupid at most of the things that they do. Um, but but the thing is, there's a whole set of logical conditions that determine when dialogue will, will trigger. But when you're constructing those conditions, you don't always think of all of the ways that that could actually happen in practice. And and this happened to me with Discworld Noir as well, because that was also a project where I had a scripting language and I created dialogue to refer to particular cases but I didn't always know that the circumstances that those cases would come up. So um, when journalists were telling me how they'd completed certain puzzles in Disco Noir, some of them told me ways to solve puzzles that I hadn't even realized were possible because I had just created all of the relevant contexts and cases, but I didn't, I couldn't possibly look at all of the ways that they could be combined. And, and Silk has this same quality whereby, yeah, I wrote all the lines of dialogue and programmed the logic for triggering it, but even I don't know the circumstances that they'll come out in practice. And um, it, it, I find it very entertaining watching some of my uh, characters in the party make snide remarks at the terrible decisions <laughs> I'm making in the game. Um, I wonder, do you actually plan to only target on those um, players, retro players that remember the old role playing games? Or is there also something that you put inside to approach youngsters 
like 20 something that have nothing in background with this old games i mean i mean myself i'm one of the last of the i'm one of the last generation that actually still knows the old games but yes. people younger than me probably don't i know i know i think you're absolutely right and that's why i felt if i was going to do a tribute to lords of midnight it has to be now because i feel like you know the the generation that remember of us that we're uh, we're we're getting on shall we say uh, and uh, many of us did not take good care of ourselves when we were younger so uh, i felt now was a good time to roll in on that but i'm certainly hoping that this is a game that younger players will also play and enjoy i don't think you need to have played the games that i'm riffing off to enjoy the experience it gives you. You just have to be open to this style of play, which is part exploration and part adventure. And if you want it to be part strategy game as well, it's, uh, I think because there are no other games that play in quite this way, um, that I think, I'm hoping that a younger audience, once they uh, encounter it, uh, will find something new and different here that uh, they'll, they'll want to engage with. And uh, maybe also learn a little something about the history of games in the process. But uh, I'll be happy if they uh, if they find it and play it, to be quite honest. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, 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 it's interesting. I spoke to a couple of developers and uh, one platform that has always have... have um, well, a look on is Metacritics, uh-huh. and um, it's it's interesting because a lot of those niche games, if you look at the uh, media, how they respond to niche games, um, like um, for example, like um, Red Rogers, who who is the successor of Commander Keen, mm. and you would you would you would see a lot of um, journalists. Who, who played the old games of the 80s and 90s loving the new game and the ones that are 20-something and never played the old game saying, oh, don't really know it. Um, so they are quite happy sometimes if they are in the middle range, uh, like neither bad ratings nor good ratings. <laughs> and I always wondered as a player myself is that if that is really a goal you would go after. Um, I'm I'm not sure. I'm I think just wondering. The thing with Metacritic is Metacritic's terribly important for the big expensive games, right? If you spent 50 million making your game and you don't get your desired 90% on Metacritic, like like Anthem recently, which pulled in a what 60 on Metacritic, that's a disaster for them, right? Because they spent a fortune on it and they needed those big scores. But if you're if you're putting together a project on I don't know 100,000 euro or whatever it is, if it's a, a, a small uh, a project, Metacritic. If you even get listed on Metacritic, you've succeeded, right? If you get enough reviews that you can appear on Metacritic, you've succeeded, regardless of what the numbers are. So uh, it's a very different prospect when you're working on these small indie titles than it, when you're working on the big titles. And one of the things that's been fun about my career is I get to do a bit of both because I because I work for other people's projects I, I get to work on on, on uh, big stuff I mean we've been working on the back end of Tropico Six at the moment which is which is imminent and so it, it, it's total chaos on that uh, that project for my team at the moment because we're trying to do uh, that and everything else and be ready for GDC uh, in what just a little over a week now um, but yeah you get to see a little bit of, of everything you get to see what the, how the bigger projects work and you get to work on the smaller projects as well and and, I, and that's pretty sweet actually I, I really like 
Um, I really like working on different scales uh, of projects. And there's there's a charm to these small indie projects that they have a little bit more freedom to be unique, I think, than, than some of the bigger projects. Is it easier for a well, a developer like yourself with a rather big name, known name to find a publisher? Uh, well, I, I'd firstly have to disabuse you of the notion that I have a big name. Um, <laughs> the, the thing is, there are many, many game designers who have a lot more traction with publishers than I do. I mean, I've been lucky that I got to work on some successful games, which is great. But um, but I, it's not like I can walk into a publisher and, and demand that they fill a bowl full of M&Ms for me. Uh, it's much more a, a matter of just going and meeting with the publishers and trying to find the ones who are interested in the kind of project that we're doing and the, and the, the scale that we're working on. I've actually got two. Pro I can't talk about the other projects. It's not been announced yet, but I've got of two course. projects, Silk and one other one that we're developing with the team uh, here in Manchester that I'm taking up to GDC. And um, it's. It's going, to be, it's going to be heavy going. Uh, I, I, people, I think, think it's glamorous to go off to San Francisco to, uh, to TDC. But uh, for me, I'm facing three days of back-to-back -back meetings. And it's, um, yeah, it, 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 it's a bit daunting at the moment. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just what we've got to do, right? We've got to go out there and we've got to show the publishers what we're doing and see who's interested in, in, in what we're doing. I guess um, we are quite successful with Silk so far. I mean, I looked at it right now and it's like halfway through and there are still about three weeks left. That's looking very promising. Yeah, we, we got a good start out there, but I, you can never count your chickens with Kickstarter is the thing. It's... Oh, geez. We've looked at the profiles of previous Kickstarters and uh, I would have felt much happier if we just raised all of our money already and we could uh, could be done. But uh, obviously, we've, we've still got uh, weeks to go. But I'm uh, I'm hoping that I'll be able to um, share some of what goes down at GDC while I'm uh, trying to sell Silk uh, to the publishers. And I, I'm trying to be open to the backers at the moment because um, they keep asking me questions like, will it be moddable and will there be a DRM-free version? And I have to come back and say, we'd like to do these things, but it really depends on the publisher, because if the publisher doesn't want um, to offer a DRM-free PC version, then we're going to be in an awkward situation, because it'll be diff very difficult to get it on all the platforms we want if we don't have the publisher to back us. So, yeah, I, I, I'm hoping to offer a fully moddable uh, DRM-free PC version, but I don't know until... Um, we get a few more of the meetings uh, under our belts, unfortunately. And that's been, I think, one of the most uncomfortable things about uh, trying to do this is tr uh, running the Kickstarter right uh, during this time where we also have to go to GDC and make deals with the publishers means that I can't I can't properly answer everybody's question. I do the best I can with the, the information we've got, but we, we don't know yet. We have to wait to see how uh, things things turn out but it's certainly an exciting time for uh, the project and and for uh, the new development team that we set up so let let's go back a bit to to silk itself um well so are there any other um i don't know um developers or people involved in the team that work on the game that are known from other games that people would say okay I have heard that name before. Uh, well, if you're a retro head, uh, then you may well have heard of Huey Games. Uh, Huey, who uh, stuck out Hyper Sentinel and are shipping uh, Woolly Mountain at the moment, which is a, a point and click. 
they have uh, pretty much uh, decided to pursue these neo-retro style games and they are also based in Manchester and good friends of ours and so we got them involved so uh, they've helped us uh, run the Kickstarter because they'd already had some experience running Kickstarters and they're also helping us on the porting on the back end because they've got prior experience working on it so uh, this is why uh, we've already got it running on the Switch basically because we've got a leg up because Huey was was there to help us and it's been really good fun uh, working with them um, really really nice people um, John and uh, Rob from uh, Huey Games uh, just really nice genuine people with a great love of, of video games and a great love of, of retro games and uh, yeah if you if you know of Iridium and you haven't seen Hyper Sentinel yet then you have totally <laughs> missed a trick and you need to go out and, and get that straight away <laughs> That's actually true. They are actually pretty much known for the older generation about um, Husen, actually. Yeah, That yeah. is where they are derived from. Well, this is it. That's why they're called Huey, because Rob Hewson is Andrew Hewson's uh, son. And Andrew Hewson, who runs Hewson Consultants, um, is uh, an, a, an advisor and a, an investor in, in Huey's operations. So they have this... Uh, great history going back to all of these uh, classic Houston consultant uh, games. And, and uh, as Commodore 64 fans, uh, obviously, we know Houston consultants particularly well because some of the greatest games on the Commodore 64. Uh, Paradroid, which is probably my favorite game of the 20th century, uh, obviously uh, developed by Graph Gold and, and published by um, Houston consultants and uh, just an absolutely astonishing um, piece of game design uh, that I worked with Graphgold briefly in their latter days and uh, I got to meet Andrew Braybrook who was my hero but um, it was largely just having a pint with him in a, in a pub near their offices and uh, I doubt he even remembers meeting me sadly um, which uh, is uh, so often the way uh, the way these things go down sadly uh, but yeah Houston Consultants just a, a, an astonishing library that they uh, they, they shipped for, uh, for those old platforms and, and justifiably uh, remembered uh, as a, a source of, of great games. So let's talk a bit about the uh, perks you are planning for the Kickstarter. Um, I saw you, you are actually um, offering a USB shaped tape, for example. Absolutely, yes. It's a USB that, that is uh, in a cassette uh, box uh, and cassette housing and uh, it's I figure if you are a retro games collector then uh, you probably wouldn't mind having a few more cassettes that you can add to your collection and so that's one of the uh, the backer awards we've offered uh, are these uh, retro 80s style uh, cassettes which are really cute really cute little things and uh, I, I, it gives me a smile every time to uh, flip open uh, a cassette box uh, and think that you could still flip open a cassette box and find a game inside uh, and not have to load it from tape. Uh, that's uh, uh, <laughs> all the retro nostalgia and none of the horror of sitting there for 30 minutes while it loads from tape and then doesn't complete and sits at the end without actually, actually running. True. We've all been there, right? We've all been there. Everyone who had a Spectrum or a Commodore 64 has had that horrific experience of getting to the end of the tape and it didn't load and you've got to load it again. Well, you won't have that problem with USB anyway. <laughs> I, I wonder... Go oh, on. Sorry. Yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, I, I wonder if, you, as to say, um, Switch as a platform, I didn't see a physical Switch perk I could have backed on. Or did I miss something? Ah, uh, no, no. You see, 
decided not to do any specific ones for the platforms because we had no idea what the proportion of the backers would would be um would want as their platform so we tried to set it up in such a way that it would work for everybody i didn't want to favor the switch uh, owners over uh, everyone else because i really didn't know what proportion of uh, of um platforms players would want and um i think i still don't know because uh, even the backer information we've got doesn't yet tell us which platform they want it on. We'll have to wait until the Kickstarter is over uh, and then run a survey. And then we'll, only then will we know what platform people actually want to play it on. Yeah. Um, but, yes, yeah, uh, I, uh, I know that the, we do have some Switch uh, fans in it, but I know also we've got some um, PC and Mac and even some Linux players who are very excited that the game uh, is going to run on Linux as, as well because the poor Linux players do, don't get many releases um, not not as many as as they'd like anyway. I saw you using Unity at least when I when I checked the demo. So I guess that makes it makes it easier to convert it to other platforms. Yeah, game developers who are starting their career now have no idea how good they've got it with with tools like Unity uh, to use. When when I look back to what game development was like in the early days of my career and compare it to what we can now do on Unity, and it's just shocking, shocking how much help you can now get. Unity makes shipping to these different platforms so much easier than uh, than it ever was. Uh, before don't get me wrong there's still a fair bit of work in getting it onto the different platforms but having a solid um engine that will run on all of those uh, platforms and is set up uh to deal with that in the first place makes life a thousand times easier i'm just uh yeah you, you've no idea if you're only starting in game development now just how good you've got it in terms of the tools that are available now it's uh it's it's really quite amazing and really great to work with and it, to the extent that i'm doing stuff with unity that i've never done on any project previously I, i've been messing around with sprites and audio and i've never really got my hands wet with this on projects i've worked on before um but it's it's easy enough to do and i, I find it difficult to then not Not just every now and then think, well, we need some placeholder sound effects, so I'll just I'll record something and uh, I'll I'll drop it into the game and then we'll we'll hear what it sounds like. So uh, yeah, it's 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 been a really really um, enjoyable um, development process, and Unity is a part of what makes that enjoyable. So I guess most people who uh, backed the Kickstarter are wondering what's happening after Kickstarter. What's your timetable? Your planning? Right. So um, th this is another one that depends on how the deals go at GDC. But we are hoping to complete the core game in about seven months from here. So uh, with luck, the, uh, the the core game will be finished uh, this year. Um, and then it is just a matter of how long it takes to get it uh, ported and passed on the different platforms um, and then shipped, which I'm suspecting will not fit into this year. And to be realistic, no publisher wants to release in the Christmas period because all all the big games are fighting to the death in, in their own battle royale in November and December. Uh, so no publisher wants to launch smaller titles uh, in that particular bloodbath. Um, so it's likely that we'll be shipping it in early uh, 2020 in practice, even though the game should be finished um sometime uh this year i say all this but this is game development and uh every time you try and predict what's going to happen in the future in game development you get it wrong um but um we hit alpha ahead of schedule 
Um, we were able to have more features in the Kickstarter demo than were planned for the Kickstarter demo, which was great news. And um, in general, I think we've, we've made very good uh, headway on, on the project. And uh, the main thing holding us up now is things like the portrait art, because we don't quite have enough resources to, uh, to get that. So we need uh, help from the Kickstarter backers or help from the publishers or a little bit of both. Um, to uh, to make ends meet, it's the trouble from having chosen an element of the game that we can't actually fulfil with our own team. Um, but I love the art that Becky's done for the portraits. And uh, have you seen that some of these portraits are uh, actually based on photographs? So one of the other rewards we're offering for the Kickstarter is to get yourself in the game. And so for, uh, the main that, yeah. yeah the main members of the team we've all been converted into. Uh, portraits for different um, ad advisors in the game. And it was tremendous fun, tremendous fun seeing, uh, for instance, Jamie, the uh, landscape artist, uh, converted into basically a, a um, Three Kingdoms cowboy, basically, the, the, this badass um, uh, rider from the, uh, the Three Kingdoms uh, area. And uh, it's it's been a lot of fun watching Becky take our photos and, uh, and turn them into advisors. And uh, that's one of the things that we're offering uh, as a backer award is to to get yourself into the game. Mm -hmm. Do you have any backup plan in case the Kickstarter doesn't turn out the way you hope it? Yes. So um, the thing is with pursuing a Kickstarter, as I said before, the golden age of Kickstarter has passed. So it, it is possible that that we will uh, we will get that heartbreaking thing where we fall just shy of the target and don't get our, 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 the, the funds through. But that won't be the end of the project. Um, it, it is simply a matter then of what the deals that we were able to make um, with the publishers at GDC. So um, the, the way publishing tends to work these days is that there's a split in, in the funds and the developer pays some of the development and the publisher spends some on the development. So there's a, there's every chance we can still uh, deliver. But I suspect if we don't succeed in the Kickstarter, it will slow the project down slightly. Um, it, it might take a little bit longer um, because we will need to then make the deal with the publisher before we can get all of the portraits made, and that's going to create a delay. So, um, yes to the backup plan, uh, but uh, it, the, the downside of that is if we don't succeed in the Kickstarter, it will uh, probably add a couple of months onto the project, which will be awkward, but that's game development, right? You, uh, you roll with the punches. And you are not planning on restarting it? Because I know that some games actually um, did that, or some um, video game, computer game projects. For example, Dave Lowe, who did his um, his um, remastered computer game audio release, he actually had to do it two, two times because he fell short of 93% fulfilled and seven were missing. So he had to run it again. And then, of course, he succeeded. You know, um, I just wonder, because personally, as a backer, I experienced that sometimes publishers give up and then it's not happening anymore. Mm. And I find that always a sad result in a way. Yeah, no, nobody wants to get emotionally involved in a project that isn't going to see itself through. I haven't ruled out running the Kickstarter a second time, particularly if, if it's obvious that we only fell slightly short and that starting again would give us an excellent chance of succeeding. And partly, I think, it, it, in the, if we did 
fall short of the Kickstarter. I'd be very tempted to run it again because I really want to get more people turned into advisors in the game because it's really good fun. And I want to let anybody who's uh, up for that have a, a shot at, uh, at going through the process. But um, it's not a decision I can make yet, basically. Um, I, we, we, we just have to see how the situation progresses. The real problem is running the Kickstarter is a lot of work. Uh, right. So it's already quite a lot of work um, doing the consultancy uh, commitments I've got and working on the two projects we've got in development at the moment. So I won't rule it out. And certainly if we came very close, I think it would be it would be a shame not to uh, run the campaign again. Um, but um, at the same time, I, I, I just don't know how things are going to go. I need to survive this trip to San Francisco, really. This is my crossing of the Rubicon. If I can come back from San Francisco and, uh, and uh, still, still be able to breathe a sigh of relief on the far side, that, that's good enough for me. And then when, when we get through that, we can work out what to do next. But um, if, uh, if you have already backed this project and you want to see it succeed, then stick with us because one way or another, we will, we will be taking this forward um and um yeah if if we have to run the kickstarter twice so be it but um it's a lot of work uh as anybody who's had a go at it will, will know it's surprising how how much time and effort you have to put in just to make the kickstarter uh, just to, to make it roll forward considering it's going all well and it's succeeding are you planning to appear at gamescom too Oh, I'm always yeah, I'm always at Gamescom. Um, I um, I used to be at GDC every year back in the back in the noughties, I went to GDC every year because I was uh, I, had, I was involved in the IGDA and I set up their um, writing special interest group for them. But then there was there was all sorts of kerfuffle over the IGDA and and it, it changed at the top and and myself and many other people from my generation sort of left them to it. Uh, and then I started going to Gamescom instead. So I'll definitely be in Cologne. Uh, although I must confess to missing Leipzig, I, I kind of liked Leipzig. I know it was a lot smaller there, um, but it's just it's a nice town, and um, yeah, Cologne seems a little bit uh, God, a little bit too big. <laughs> pushing up on the size of E3 now, and E3 is too big for its own boots, frankly. But mm. I'll definitely be in Gamescom, and um, with luck, we'll be in Gamescom and be able to uh, show the game uh, at beta at, at that point if everything goes to plan. Probably in the um, indie area, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't worked out any details yet because we're still we're still trying to get uh, get everything <laughs> sorted for GDC, and we've got develop afterwards um, because uh, we, here in the UK we've got uh, develop in Brighton, which is a ton of fun. Susan Marshall runs that, and she she ran the GDCs when I went to GDC, and she's really good. Uh, events organizer so we like to do develop as well so it's there's a lot a lot of stages between here and uh, and gamescom but uh, we we will be out there and we will have the game to show so certainly we should meet up because um we always do interviews about retro ips or ips that are coined on retro or mm. retro successor games so we, we certainly should meet up then. I would love to meet up with you at Gamescom. And by that point, I should also be able to show you one of the other projects we're working on, which also has a retro vibe, but it's very different. It's nothing like Silk at all, um, but uh, it, there's still there's still a little a little of 1984 in the other game as well. 1984, <laughs> I'm starting to realize, is the year where uh, some of the most awesome things ever made uh, were made. I have to admit, I'm always a bit surprised that at Gamescom I see very little retro publishing. 
actually doing interviews with guys like you. And I'm, I'm wondering why that is. Mostly I see like modern media, but I don't think I ever saw Retro Gamer UK, which is like the number one magazine for retro conducting interviews at Gamescom business area. But maybe I'm just blind, but I never saw it. I don't think I've seen it either. I I don't know how they go about stuff. I've I've had articles. Um, I've been interviewed over email for stuff on Retro Gamer uh, several times. But um, honestly, I think the thing is something like Gamescom. There is so much going on that uh, you can't possibly do everything right. So um, I, I think I think the interview schedules probably just get filled up, uh, and that's about uh, about the size of it. To be quite honest, there's only so many hours in the day, and there are so many so many projects uh, at Gamescom. It's so huge now. It's it really is uh, getting to be the, the largest um, uh, video. I mean, there's E3, of course, but E3 E3 is rubbish. Let me tell you now, E3 is horrible. E3 is loud and obnoxious. And uh, nowhere near as uh, fun as Gamescom. Um, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't make this part of the recording then. <laughs> um, but it's 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 funny. Uh, auto, um, oh well, I'm sorry we lost a bit of track here, but it uh, was just interesting. <laughs> the best conversations go off track, right? Uh, right. What's, what's the point of having a chat if you can't go off on wild tangents? It's it's half the, the fun of it. Well, I didn't know how much time you have, but but I like my to to, to do my interviews long and to cover all the aspects of what the person is doing and what he's trying to achieve with it. Um, especially since nowadays the interviews are mostly 15 minutes and they are all asked the same questions. <laughs> well, I probably didn't have an hour to spend on this, but I did anyway, so uh, that's fair enough. Uh, no, okay. it's been a, a pleasure talking to you. I um, I never tire of talking about uh, the, the old uh, games, and uh, it's really been fun for me to uh, find excuses to, to take my love of classic games and, and try and make uh, newer style games uh, that riff on them in interesting ways. And I think that's, as a game designer, it's something that I always like to do, is to pay tribute to the, the games that inspired me and to find ways to to not, you know, not make it again, but to look up the things I loved about those games and find new ways to bring them in, into uh, games for today. I think there's there's something really special about having the opportunity uh, to do that. And it's something I really enjoy doing. Um, mm. I, uh, I, I uh, can't believe that I've had this opportunity to uh, take some of my influences from, from my childhood and, and turn them into what we hope is going to be successful commercial projects. That's That's really wonderful. Well, if you look at old game designs and old stuff, I mean, some people are really old by now. I mean, for example, if you remember um, Ghostbusters with this um, this synthetic uh, speech. Yes, you know, yeah. there, there was some of the first digital speech that we had in video games, and it was very, very poor. And on, on the spectrum, yeah. it was almost impossible to understand what was being said. Yeah. You could yeah. still make it out. You could still yeah. make it out on the Commodore 64 and go, yeah. he slimed me. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, the spectrum was more like, and you had no clue what it was that <laughs> exactly. was being said. Yeah, yeah. And and Forrest Moser, um, who invented that speech synthesis, he's turning not ninety this year. Ninety. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You see, this is this is this is the thing that. that uh, 
the 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 generation that first grew up making the, these video games they're not going to be with us much longer i mean um mike singleton who, who made laws of midnight sadly passed away a couple of years ago and i think we should do what we can to pay tribute to these classic uh, video games while the people who made them are, are still alive if we can it's um it's an important part of the way that any medium uh, survives is to, to honour the people who went before us. And I, I hope we never lose sight of that. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. I should probably I should probably leave it there. All right. <laughs> OK. Well, thanks for your time. Thank you. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll speak again soon, Jörg. OK. Have a good evening. Bye Thanks. bye. Bye. So that was oh I'm back. <laughs> so that was Chris Bateman. Um, right. You should check out Silk. It's on Kickstarter right now. It's www.kickstarter.com/project/ihobogames/silk-one, and there's going to be uh, links to everything that we talked about in the podcast description on our own page, sceneworld.org. So you already know where to find us because you're listening to us. So until next time, we'll see you.